Hi everyone, this is Meredith Nelson with the Mormon Women Project. Recently, we produced a series of short essays focusing on the end of the childbearing years. Our 80 or so stories showed the complexity of this transition for many women and the diversity of our experiences in passing through a universal life change. Editing the series left me contemplating change and how I respond to it on a new level. So when I heard that Segula was publishing a collection of essays and poems by Mormon women focusing on the theme of transitions, I knew I wanted to pick up the volume. It is called Seasons of Change, and its nearly 50 stories range from heart-wrenching to humorous and grapple with questions of expectation, memory, resistance, sacrifice, time, and how our relationships with God, with each other, and with ourselves shift through each transition. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with Segola, it is, as stated on their website, a literary journal and blog designed to encourage literary and artistic talent, provoke thought, and promote greater understanding and faith among Latter-day Saint women. They publish insightful writings and images which explore life's richness and complexity while reflecting faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm happy today to share an interview with Sandra Clark Jurgensen and Sheila Masney-Miner, the editors of Segula's newest anthology, Seasons of Change. I want to start just by learning about Segula. Sheila, you are no longer an editor at Segula, but you were a longtime editor. And Sandra, you're still an editor there. So maybe, Sheila, you can start off by telling us a little bit about how it got started and what its history has been. In 2006... There were some women who were living in Utah County, Utah County and Salt Lake County, primarily Catherine Leonard Soper and Kylie uh, Turley, who has some essays in our book, and Justine Dorton, who also has essays in our book. And there may have been some other founding members, but those were the three initial members who come to mind. They felt like there was a place, a place, there were lots of places for Mormon women to write but not so many places for faithful Mormon women to explore lots of issues, both within their religion, but also just, you know, through life, within life in general. And so I think that that was sort of the impetus for the founding of Segala was from a point, from the perspective of faithful Mormon women who were really looking to dig deep and explore hard questions in in their lives. And it started out as a journal, a printed journal? As a printed journal, yes. And it was quickly, around the same time it was founded as a journal, there started to be a, a blog that was nearly a day, has been nearly a daily blog for the entire length of time that Segala has been in existence. And then about five years ago, we transitioned from a print journal to an online, so from a quarterly print journal to a monthly online journal. And so we have published three books and then about six years as a print journal, 11 years as a, as a blog, and about five years as an online journal. And Sandra, can you tell us a little bit about what's up on the Segula site? What are the offerings on your platform? Yes, the website has a dual function. There's the site, the daily blog, and then there's the monthly journal publication. And in our monthly journal, um, in the last year and a half, we've started having, in addition to the featured artwork that we've always had, we also now feature regular um, established women Mormon writers. 
So really cool stuff from folks like Mel Lilani Larson, uh, Fiona Givens, um, Meg Conley, Ashmi um, Christensen Holland, just to name a few. So we have the featured work every single month from someone who's really has a, an established voice and some great things to say, a place to share their writing in addition to the featured artwork. And then what's really fun is being able to publish up-and-coming Mormon writers. So mm-hmm. we have prose and poetry, and we a lot of people, it's their first time publishing with us, so that's a really cool experience to get people published in right next to people who are really established, as well as folks on our staff and those who have been publishing for a while. So it's all sorts of ways to share your own experience and perspectives through prose, poetry, and visual art. The themes aren't always Mormon themes, is that right? Um, No. The idea is we're talking about our experience and through the lens of what it looks like to be a Mormon woman in a variety of perspectives. So sometimes we are talking about things that are directly correlated to our Mormon experience, and sometimes that's just a context. Well, and so Segala has three anthologies now in print, and the most recent, um, published at the end of last year, 2017, is called Seasons of Change, edited by the two of you, by Sheila Miner and by Sandra Clark Jorgensen. Uh, I want to talk about this book. I really have enjoyed its many flavors as I've worked through the prose and the poetry, and it's, it's you know, it is essays by Mormon women. Mm-hmm. But there's, but as you said, it's about all different facets of life. So could you talk a little bit about what inspired the book? Sheila and I were both, um, it had been a while since Segala had published a book, and I just, we felt like we wanted to create the book that we wanted to read. There was a lot going on in Mormon issues at the time, um, cultural stuff and social stuff. And we felt like we were ready to expand the books had all previously been written about motherhood. And I felt like my experience as a woman um, that's Mormon is so much wider than being a mother. And I wanted to really give voice to the many facets of that and all the different feelings and perspectives I have as a Mormon woman, because my experience as a mother is huge, but that is not everything that I am. And I think part of that also drew from the fact that when the journal was, or when when Segala was founded, it was founded by women who were young mothers of small children. And for the first few years of Segala, it seemed like a lot of the recruitment that was done for adding people to the group was, you know, let's invite our friends to write. Our friends who write, we have all of these friends who are great writers, let's invite them to write about their experiences. So it seemed for quite a while that we were really in the trenches of young motherhood. Many of us were in the trenches of young motherhood. And after about five years of Segala's existence, we realized that we were really good at what we were doing, which was talking about, you know, young motherhood from a Mormon perspective. But we weren't as good at looking at other facets of womanhood. And so we really, as an editorial body, made the kind of a conscious decision to try to branch out a little bit in our mm-hmm. recruitment and in our in, in in the subjects. As you know, Meredith, since you've read the book, you know that motherhood is definitely an undercurrent in a lot of in in a lot of the pieces. 
but we didn't want it to necessarily be the defining thing that Segula was known for because while it's definitely an important and I would say really central part of many Mormon women's existence, it's not the only important part of a Mormon woman's existence. Yeah, mm-hmm. when I came into Segula, um, I was the about the exact same time I was starting graduate school because I had decided to go back to school for my master's. And so I had hit a new season and Segula had started to transition at that time. And we were talking about more people. And I think that's when a few people came in that really didn't fit the mold, women who were not married or women who were older. And it was a fun season to start to get a lot more inclusive. So the book is about transitions, about big changes in life or little changes in life. And I, as I was reading, I kept a, a list of the kinds of transitions that were covered, and it might give our listeners an idea of the breadth of the topics. And I realized I kind of stopped keeping the list eventually <laughs> about halfway through, but I'll read some of the ones that I, um, that I wrote down. Um, there are pieces that deal with job loss, wealth and poverty, the death of a parent or a sibling or a grandparent, marriage of a child, sickness, pregnancy, the maturation of a child, returning home, baby blessings, burials, um, the period of time after having a baby, the postpartum period, divorce, conversion, menstruation, menopause, charity, caring for the mentally ill, missions, the death of a spouse, gay family members, fostering and adoption, sex, house hunting, having a weird kid, um, forgive- <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember which one I'm referring I to. There. <laughs> um, forgiving a parent, motherhood, going back to work, aging, depression, faith struggles, changing a habit, um, Parkinson's disease, changing names, uh, reconnecting with a father or a mother, becoming a grandmother. I mean, it's a really broad lens on life. And so how did you end up categorizing these stories as you created this collection? (laughs) So we had put out an open call to um, the staff members of Segula and put out invitations to those who have written with us before that we really loved and said, hey, come join us for this book. The only theme that we have together is that we really feel strongly that we'd like to talk about transitions And that was the running title of the book for a while. And we kind of said, write about whatever time in your life that felt really awakening, whatever it was and whatever it looks like. And so in the open call, we got a really wide lens of what transitions look like for different people. And we said, oh, no, now how do we categorize them, like I said? And we, I remember Sheila and I say, no one wants to read the death chapter. <laughs> and so we got to find a different way to put this all together. But these are all very real parts of life. And no one wants the sad, you know, gloomy chapter. There's got to be a better way to bridge these things. And so as we were sitting there on the floor in Sheila's bedroom, we printed out copies of the entire manuscript of all of the different stories that come together in the book. I said, there's got to be a different way to connect them. And I kid you not that all of a sudden inspiration struck because it was not my brilliance and said, you know, things connect because words feel different in different seasons of your life. And they become new. And it was that idea of those words that started to bridge things together. Uh, We we picked words like hunger and grappling, acceptance. And uh, yeah, you could go through the list. Connection, 
there's a lot of them. And we realized that those what feelings of welcome look like in different seasons, because we talk about someone um, in a second marriage coming into the church and how all those different feelings of welcome connect disparate experiences, even though they're totally different circumstances. The feeling and how that word um, really bridges that period of your life and connects feels like a nice way to connect with other people, even though you'll probably never share the exact same experiences. You know that feeling. It's very familiar. Hunger was a really fun one to pull together Mm -hmm. because there's that piece where Sheila writes about her sex life with a house full of kids. And I'm (laughs) writing about the... um, how I came to foster uh, children, uh, aside from the ones that I birthed. And we uh, we have a piece where someone writes about a divorce because her spouse has come out as gay. And how um, the thing that connects through that whole season of her life is hunger and food and how she realizes it's not about her relationship with anyone else, but it's about taking care of herself. And it's beautiful. So what are the lessons about transition? What are your takeaways? I think one takeaway for me was that nothing is taboo. And nothing is taboo for a Mormon woman to be able to talk about. Because if you look at the, I mean, if you, if you go back to that list that you created and you say, oh, this is a story about, you know, menstruation. And this is a story about sex. And this is a story about... Um, having a gay family member, and this is a story about mental illness. Those are all topics that we that we sometimes shy away from talking about, or that we sometimes feel like Mormons m- maybe shouldn't have shouldn't be dealing with those with with some of those issues. And I think that presenting narratives really humanizes. It, they don't. They're not issues anymore. They're stories about people that we understand because we get a glimpse into people's lives, and so it becomes less, less, you know, topical. Like less about the topic of this is about my gay dad, and more about this is about a person who I really loved and it affected, you know, impacted my life in in a significant way, or had I had a complicated relationship with, which I think is more of the the takeaway of Sherilyn's piece, which is the one that I'm referring to there. Mm. I think that reading this book can help teach us how to listen to, you know, to people who have these taboo uh, life experiences. I I liked um, what was Teresa Brown Edmonds story, Mm -hmm. how to kill a cocktail party. She kind of talks about how she, (laughs) she has this thing that she can't talk about because people don't know how to respond. You know, they, they'll have some, one liner that they'll give her, oh, that must be hard. And, you know, and then they go and refill their drink. (laughs) And, and as I read that, I thought, wow, I wonder if I've ever done that when someone was, was sharing something difficult with me about their, their child with a, with a disability or, or their gay brother, if I have ever been the one who let it kill the cocktail party. To me, it felt like the book was an invitation to step in with more people, that people are having such brilliant and colorful lives that invite you to be as human as they are. Mm-hmm. I, I have a really close friend who com- contributed a piece to the book, Julia Lamar, who um, was going through a divorce at the time that she was writing her piece. And she just kept coming. She, we just kept talking about how, and she writes about this in her piece. 
um, about how her life at the point that she wrote the essay was just very different than how she expected it to be. And she kept talking about how she had always thought she was living a plan A life and now she was living a plan B life. And I remember saying, well, everybody's living a plan B life. And I think part of part of this book, at least from my perspective, is learning that everybody's got, everybody's got, this is all of our, our maybe our plan B. Maybe that could have been an alternate title, the the Plan B life. Not that, <laughs> but just but just that we all the, that the transitions in our lives present interesting challenges that don't that don't diminish us that can provide really interesting opportunities for growth, but often force us to kind of reframe how we see what we thought the trajectory of our lives was going to be. Totally, I amen that because the things that I write about in the book, I would have never done in my plan A. Oh, I know. And I write, I mean, I write, I finish my essay like, oh, you know, everything is great. My kids are growing older. We can, you know, have as much fun in bed again as we want. And then a year later, I had two new babies, you know, (laughs) like, so who knows, you know? Yeah, that that expectation was a big theme in the book, and and what expectations, how they hinder us. Um, it, in uh, Teresa Brown Edmonds' story, again, she wrote on page one sixty five, it is always the friction of expectations rubbing up against reality that causes the pain. Yeah, um, and that you know that theme shows up in so many stories. I also loved uh, in Kylie Nielsen Turley's story, Beautiful Ashes, where she writes really eloquently about her father's death. She says, expectations hid God from me. Over and over again in these stories and poems, we find that when people can release those expectations and live in this transition, they, they do find God. Um, and they're touched by God in that moment of change. That was another theme I, I'm interested to hear you talk about is what unifies all of these transitions? What do we find in all of them? Um, one of the writers talked about in between places, uh, Lisa Ramsey Harris's story. She talks about sitting in her car in the parking garage, kind of in this place in between home and in between teaching class where she can just um, be this transitional space. And a lot of people kind of identify transition as this time where you are accessible to God in a way that we aren't at other times of our lives. Yeah, it feels honestly like these little tiny ruptures that break the surface and what we thought we were and who we thought we could be. And they expose you in a way that feels so terribly vulnerable and so accessible at the same time is those moments where I'm saying, how God is definitely where I seem to find God most. And I think you can see that in so many of these experiences of everyone saying, this is not what I thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. but I'm coming out of this knowing something that I didn't before. And I think sometimes we call leap something a leap of faith in retrospect that we feel like is just a leap into the void in the moment. And I think that's one of the things that unifies a lot of these is that we are exploring times where you kind of have to, have to be willing to, to leap whether it's a leap of faith or a leap of, you know, a leap of we're not sure what it is yet, but, um, but 
of uh, uh, into vulnerability, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where writing is so fruitful. I remember sitting down to write my pieces and even putting the book together saying, I don't know what the finished project is going to look like, but it's in that exploration and in that puzzling with the book that really brought forth some sort of gold that I wouldn't have found unless I went digging. Well, and I think this kind of lends itself, this conversation sort of lends itself to what we found as a challenge when we were editing the book is that I think in our Mormon tradition, we look for stories that, you know, look at some, look at something from a point of view of this is something that happened in the past that, and this is what happened and this was what was hard and this is what I learned from it. And this is how I'm a better person now. And it just kind of follows, you know, a neat narrative arc. arc. Yeah. And we were, we tried to sort of I mean, not always resist that arc because there were times when it was appropriate for the story that was being told. But there were other times where there isn't resolution or there isn't or or the narrative doesn't resolve as neatly. And because a lot of times people are still in the midst of the transition that they're writing about. Yeah, not everything comes with an enzyme ending. Yes. Yeah, there were quite a few pieces that um, just felt really present <laughs> as I read them. Um, I'm going to read a, an excerpt from Linda Hoffman Kimball's piece called Lessons from the Valley of the Shadow. She said um, she's writing about when her husband was diagnosed with a very serious cancer and was going to have a um, mother of all surgeries. She said, she's talking about all the people who just filled in to take care of the mail and the bills and responsibilities. And she said, how comforting to know that the world around us would continue to keep up its normal rhythms when internally seismic fractures threatened my sense of order. How connected I felt to our children, those incredible miracles who shared the pain, anxiety, and holiness of this journey with us. I began to see every ordinary act as a gift, every random driver at a stop sign a fellow child of God on their own mortal journey. Every ripple of sunlight through the newly budding trees of visual hallelujah. Everything became a simple sacrament of the present moment. I think that is just beautiful language, but so many of them just talk about this present simplicity when you're going through a really you know, seismic shift in your life. Also, uh, a pleasure to edit those pieces. Yeah. To help really bring out their voices because they had such profound things to say mm-hmm. and helping yeah. sift that sand to get it to the surface was delightful. And such honest things to say. Uh, Kylie Nielsen Turley, she says in hers, in her piece about her father dying and being there and helping, she said, do you want to know my appalling secret? I will miss it, the dying. Days lived in the shadow of death crackle with intense soul-stripping simplicity. And she said that in in that moment, she was more passionately alive than she had ever been. And again, this idea of of almost enjoying these moments of change because they are so they're they're so different from our regular lives, and they're simple and they're raw and and we're touchable. Do either of you have a favorite excerpt that you would want to share? Or a favorite story you want to recommend to, to readers? One of my favorites is Horizon by Darlene Young. I love the way 
that in this poem, she juxtaposes the present with the future. I, I'm not going to do it justice, but should I read it anyway? Yes, do it, please. Okay. I actually wanted to read this one, so I'm glad you chose okay. it. <laughs> Horizon by Darlene Young. A girl puts her head on a boy's shoulder. They are driving west. The cool tangerine sky outside Wells, Nevada, a belt blows. They have their whole lives ahead of them. At the garage, the mechanic listens to classical music. Five hours to kill in the killing heat. She will have a bout with breast cancer at 58. They walk around town, game for adventure, storage units, check and loan, acupuncture. One of their children will break their hearts. He could get a tattoo while she gets her nails done. A boy throwing a rubber ball against the parking lot barrier. Dog pens in the trailer park. Hardware store, drawer pulls and doorbells, beef jerky, car air fresheners. He tries on cowboy hats. At 72, he will begin his slide into Alzheimer's. She will brush his teeth. Somewhere, someone is practicing a clarinet. The mechanic offers them tomatoes from his garden. They pull out at dusk, her hand out the window, arcing and diving. The stars, the sage, they could be anywhere. Their carpet will turn powdery and dank. There will be grandbabies. The cool of the earth, tangerine. What do you like about that one? Well, I just love the way that, I love the unexpectedness of what she does with the, the juxtaposition of time. And I also just love the way in single words, she's able to create a vision of things and in how she touches on so many life transitions and the kind of the scope of a life in, you know, this, this poem is uh, 21 lines and kind of encapsulates both this, the, the present moment of these, this young couple stranded at the, in Wells, Nevada, and also the whole scope of, of their life to come. Sandra, did you have one that you loved? Yeah, I got to edit Jen Quist's piece called Ice Cream with Superman and Tosca. Oh my goodness, I love this piece. I ate this one up. I was so lucky. Jen is such an incredible writer. And I love it that her um, brother-in-law, who has a lot of challenges, she opens the piece introducing him as Superman, who she refers to him pretty much the whole piece. So I'll read you a selection of that. July 1996. On my brother-in-law's 19th birthday, he bought himself a present, a blue T-shirt with the Superman crest on it. Anyone can wear a shirt like that today, but back then they were new and special, and everywhere he went, he ran. And when he dashed through the park past a mom and her kids, it couldn't be left unspoken, unshouted. A stranger's child called out after him, Superman. July 2011. Days before his 35th birthday, Superman walked out on his wife and his little daughter. She knew he wouldn't send us, us word himself, so she was the one to tell my husband and me her final act on his behalf. The ranting paranoia, the suicide smock in the hospital, it's been a difficult year. Smoky, weedy, midlife crisis can be burn out of control. His flared into a drug-induced, quasi-schizophrenic, psychotic disorder, rare but not unheard of, Controversial, but not inconvertible. Don't tell me cannabis is a plaything, a punchline. For him, it's a chemical burn to the brain, an inferno of voices and fear, panic, and the irony of love waxing cold in the heat. Do not begin to tell me. He manages to be super fun while it's hard, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did you love about that one, Sandra? 
I loved it because Jen made it so approachable because she talks about getting ice cream with her brother-in-law who's been having psychotic episodes. And I love that she keeps him so, um, she elevates him by calling him Superman the whole time rather than a judge, you know, and she picks apart her own judgments in the piece and comes back questioning, you know, everything. And because she's so open and the writing is so eloquent because when you're pitched a hard thing and yet you're willing to suspend your judgment and to learn something, that's really hard to do. And Jen does it with so much grace. Mm-hmm. And the ending is really wonderful, how she talks about what charity is and and how it's only possible because of this holy third party in our lives um, and describes the Savior as the great upender of paradoxes, the purifier of corruptible love, which makes my rotten offerings acceptable. Exactly. are so good. I wanted to ask about memory as a theme in the book. You chose to end the book with, and maybe you can just tell me about this decision, with a piece by Rosalind Eves called Memory of Place. And she talks about returning to Capitol Reef. And she's been there so many different stages of life that um, that the place has become kind of a, a sacred treasure chest of memories in a way. But that mem- memory is a sanctifying agent in this piece and it's what makes the place sacred um so why did you choose to finish with that piece sure i had the chance to work with rosalind on that piece and i knew it was what i wanted to end the book with as soon as i read it because i love that she's coming back to the same place every year and it's different and the same and it's what she needs it to be every single time because I feel like we come back to the same places, the same routines, the same people all throughout our life, but they change and we change. So I love that the idea that time lays on top of each other, takes on different meanings and it's like you can kind of grasp the past through the present. And I think it's also significant that kind of at the end of it all, our memories are what we have. And as we all know, our memories are not strictly factual. Our memories are all, you know, filtered through the lens of experience. I think that this whole anthology shows how our experience in the moment and, you know, sometimes removed from the moment filters the way that we see things. Christy Clark Rasmussen also touches on memory in her piece, Breaking Character, which has kind of a fun format. She's got, um, it's written like a, the script of a play, and it kind of transitions between that and prose. Um, but she writes about kind of coming to decide to marry the man that she ended up marrying. And he's not what she expected. You know, she had planned to marry a doctor or lawyer type, and he was just a very kind of soft-spoken patient but very constant friend in her life Um, and she writes on page 237 um, as much as I wonder what would happen if I were to rewrite recast the part of fiance and the eventual husband I can't imagine it any other way I'm past that point of considering I made my choice when I married him but that wasn't the last one I get to choose every day to love Rather than worrying if I found the perfect match, I concentrate on perfecting the match I cast. 
I think that that binds the, the theme of memory and the past with this theme of, of transitioning to the present and what do we do now that we're here and all of our expectations have been just blown away. We focus on perfecting the moment that we're in and being as full of love as we can be. What about this anthology is Mormon, besides, besides the fact that the writers are all Mormon women? That's a good question. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have the answer might be nothing. That. I mean, are there any, are there any Mormon themes that, that pop up more than once or that, you, or that you noted that wouldn't exist in an anthology that was more ecumenical? <laughs> I think as Mormon women, we're particularly hard on ourselves and we have real rigid expectations of what we think our life is going to look like. And so this was fascinating to realize all those different ways that those things come apart and how they don't have to be bad. Because we often think we're so sad that plan A is not going to work out. And so there's a real mourning over that especially as Mormon women, when we have these ideas of perfection and expectation. I'm just going back to Christy's piece and thinking about, I know Christy very well, and she's a gunner. She is a person who works and works and works and works and had done all of these tremendous things with her life, had double majored in theater and hence the, the theater theme to what she's writing and in communications and has an MBA and has done all these things and thought she would marry someone who was so much like herself that was that kind of a gunner. And then there's kind of a, a loss or a rupture, even though it doesn't have to be a rupture, of what you thought things were going to be and then when they're different. And so it's kind of a reset. And it's something I think Mormon women especially deal with. And I think lots of these pieces, you could, I, I think of, um, Anna Sam, Sam Lehnert's piece, Uncalled For, where she writes about the choice not to go on a mission. And I think when I think of a, a girl who is of mission age who doesn't go on a mission, I don't think I think about it twice because I grew up in the era where going on a mission was was not the norm. But I but that reading that piece made me realize that for someone her age, that was really a, a difficult decision and one that for her made her feel that she wasn't following, wasn't necessarily con connecting the dots on the dot to dot that had been put out in front, in front of every, like we all think that there's one path. And I think what I love about this is that it shows us that there are so many paths to living, you know, even a righteous life. And I think that the things that we think that m we might have to confess over, which I sort of, I think we also sort of resisted making this a confessional anthology. <laughs> Um, the things that we feel sometimes we have to confess over are the things that make us better and make us more interesting and make us stronger for each of each of us coming to that, that point of realization, even though we know it and can, can forgive it in other people, it's often harder for us to forgive it and to know it and forgive it in ourselves. It's interesting listening to you two both talk about that concept at the Mormon Women Project, we focus a lot on honoring women's choices and and trusting women to make the right choices for their own lives in consultation with the Lord, you know, to find their own path and recognizing that there isn't just one right or righteous path for Mormon women. But re reading this anthology, 
um, I realized that even if we all were choosing the same path and wanted the same path and tried to have the same path, it wouldn't happen because there's so much that's just out of our control that affects the way our lives end up looking in the end and the, and the people we associate with. We couldn't all be the same if we wanted to be. No, and I really, to butt in, say, hooray for Mormon Women Project, I really love what you've done with the series with the end of the childbearing years, which I think connects with so much with what we're talking about, too, with transitions. Mm-hmm. But there's, it doesn't look the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, what beautiful stories you've told through that. I've loved mm-hmm. it. For sure. Yeah, and it and it is so fascinating that it's all it's all the same story, right? Like, how did you how did you come come to that point in your life where you knew you wouldn't be bearing any more children or bearing any at all? So it should all be the same story, and yet there are eighty eighty something different variations, and they're just dramatically different from each other. Even a transition that we all share is experienced in such diverse ways. Uh-huh. And I, I think that's something that Sandra and I have both sort of gone through as we, as we were editors together, we were both sort of going through that stage in our own lives. And it's, I think it's been interesting for the two of us to see how the choices have been similar and different for, for both of us as we've ended that phase of our lives. I mean, I'm not at Sekola anymore because I've gone back to work full time. And so that is, that's been a, a big change in my own life that I didn't anticipate needing, but I needed it for my, for my sanity. So after having six kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And um, to finish my story, I talk about um, being open to fostering and thinking I would adopt. And it's been years now and I haven't adopted, but I have been an active foster parent for three years, but none of those situations has led to adoption. And it's not a failure on my part. It's that situation wasn't happening and it wasn't right. And it's so much of being open and not knowing what that's going to be look like, but being willing to say, okay, I, I'm waiting. <laughs> Guide me a little bit here, please. Well, that's, I think, a really great note to end on. Um, it's, it's the takeaway of the book, really, is just this idea of being open and saying, one step enough for me. <laughs> show me. Show me what I do next. How do I live in this moment of change? So thank you, Sandra and Sheila, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.